You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. As you're being seated, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 14. And as always, we do have our sermon notes available in our Google Drive folder if you'd like to access those. Last week, we looked at the end of chapter 13 and what it meant for us to be known for our love. We talked about our identity not being tied to the evil done to us or the failures made by us, but instead rest in the love that Jesus has for us. And we show this true identity by the way we love others. And so we talked about uh, Jesus not getting caught up in the evil that was being done to him by Judas. We talked about the failures of Peter and how ultimately that would not be what defines him either. Um, That Jesus uses that concept of love to say that this is how the world will know that you're my disciples, by your love. And and so we're to, we're to show that love to others to declare who we are as Christ's followers. We talked about being thankful that Jesus rules over evil. Um, we see him predicting and prophesying the idea that this evil is going to happen, that there's no surprises there, which he says is meant to encourage the disciples that he's telling them in advance so that their faith doesn't waver when, when they see a Judas betray them or when they see a Peter denying uh, him, that, that they've anticipated that, that they've been told that that's going to happen. We said last week that sometimes that happens for us, that when somebody close to us, a pastor or a former disciple or a Sunday school teacher, when one of those individuals falls, oftentimes our faith gets shaken and we start to question whether or not we're in the faith or whether or not we should continue in the faith, because if this person couldn't make it, could we? And we said that Jesus declares to us that there will be tares amongst the wheat even until he comes back as well. Right? And so he even tells us we should expect people to be in the church, to call themselves Christians for a time, and then to waver in the faith. We should see that. We should recognize that. It should not uh, weaken our faith. Instead, it should strengthen our faith. We talked about him commanding the evil that he tells Judas, once Satan has entered into him, to be quick about what he is going to do, that ultimately Jesus is still calling the shots. And we talked about him using that evil to strengthen the faith of the disciples to fulfill the scripture, to ultimately bring glory to God. And then we saw that intentional identity with love, that love is commanded to us, that we have a responsibility to, to seek to do it as Jesus did it, which means we can always be improving upon the ways that we love others. And that ultimately our loving others is gospel driven. We make much of God with how we love others. And I told you one of the defining characteristics to me about what radical love looks like that identifies us with Jesus It's us loving even when it doesn't feel or receive love back, right? That we're called to love others whether we ever feel that that was reciprocated to us or not. That we're called to love, we're called to love, we're called to love, and we keep loving whether we get loved back or not. Um, We talked about being grateful that failures uh, aren't always betrayals, right? We said that the difference between Peter and Judas is that Peter has different desires than Judas. Peter desires to follow Jesus Peter desires to go wherever Jesus goes, whereas Judas is far more concerned about money, far more concerned about the things of this world. So true salvation does give us new desires, but it doesn't exempt us from failing, right? Peter's a a weird type of encouragement to us in that Peter fails and is still used by God. He's, He's still declared clean by Jesus, right? Washing his feet, but says, you don't need a full bath. You're clean. It's a reminder to us that even in the midst of our failures, it doesn't mean that we've abandoned the faith like a Judas, right? That, that we will be very much like Peter at times where we, we don't follow through faithfully as we should. But, but Peter serves as that encouragement to us that failures aren't always betrayals. Application-wise, I told you last week, 
uh, for you to really sit back and think through what does it look like for you to personally love others both outside and inside our church intentionally like Jesus. That command to love is given to us because we don't naturally love others. I told you that we've tried to structure things here to give you outlets to love other people, particularly through like our D groups and our C groups, that being able to gather in that setting is a tangible way to put the needs of others above your own needs, to invest and to love others through those smaller settings. But some people's schedule doesn't work for that, right? And so we talked about that too, that, hey, these are suggested ways, highly encouraged ways, but being a part of our church you have to find a way to do it if, if you can't do it through the suggested ways, right? That we all have to be intentional with loving each other uh, within this church. That brings us to John chapter 14 today. Let not your hearts be troubled, Jesus says. On the heels of talking about the betrayal, on the heels of talking about the denial of Peter, on the heels of talking about his own departure, He now comes to the rescue for his disciples and talks about why they do not need to be troubled about this news. And so we're going to look at that together today. Cures for a Troubled Heart is the title for our sermon today. Our summary sentence, maturing faith in Jesus is the basis for preventing one's heart from being troubled. Maturing faith in Jesus is the basis for preventing one's heart from being troubled, with our anxieties particularly dissipating as we recognize more clearly our secure future and our present purpose. So maturing faith, that growing faith, that ongoing faith, that's the basis for for preventing our hearts from being troubled. And what we see in this passage is that our anxieties are particularly dissipating or dissolving as we recognize more clearly our secure future and our present purpose. Because when Jesus tells them not to have troubled hearts, he tells them to believe, to have that faith, and then particularly draws their faith's attention to their secure future. He's leaving them, but he's coming back for them. He's bringing a place with him, right? And then he goes into their specific purpose in life right now talks about these greater works that they're supposed to be doing, talks about their prayer life and the effectiveness that that a Christian's prayer can be when it's aligned with God's will. Okay, so he starts this section off talking about why their hearts should not be troubled or how to make sure they don't allow their hearts to be troubled, right? And talks about it being a growing faith, a maturing faith that is the basis for preventing their hearts from being troubled. And then he particularly draws attention to the fact that their anxieties will dissipate as they recognize more clearly their secure future and their present purpose. For our kids, the more we trust Jesus, the less we have to worry about. The more we trust Jesus, the less we have to worry about. Jesus, I told you a couple of weeks ago that we were now transitioning into a, a section of the, of the book that really takes place in a couple of hours, that we've been talking for his three-year ministry up until this point, and now a lot of this content is the night before his crucifixion, right? And so what Jesus is doing here is he is preparing his disciples for life after the cross. There's this transitional period. They've been following him, and what it meant to follow Jesus looked one way up until the cross, and now it's going to look different after the cross. Why? 
Well, because he's not going to be physically present, right? It's real easy to talk about following the shepherd and going wherever he goes when he's literally physically present with you and he says, hey, today we're going to Galilee or today we're going to Bethsaida or wherever his agenda was. Now you're taking Jesus out of the picture from a physical standpoint, even though he tells his disciples upon leaving, I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you, I'll go with you to the ends of the earth. He physically won't be with them. Well, now what does that look like to follow Jesus, right? Now what does it look like for us to follow him wholeheartedly? That's what Jesus is going to do over the next several chapters is prepare his disciples for life after the cross. Now for us, that's all we've ever known, right? But what we see in these next couple of chapters gives us an indicator as to what our life is supposed to look like following Jesus without him being physically present. How do you follow him when he isn't physically present? He says, let not your hearts be troubled. I love what uh, we see at the end of Luke, in Luke chapter 24, verse 52, after he has ascended, after he has left, right? Like gone for good in the sense that he's not coming back anytime soon, right? They lost him when they were separated with him when he was arrested. Then they lost him for the amount of three days while he was dead, then they don't see him, you know, until he's resurrected. And then he's kind of in and out for the next several days as, as he's waiting for the ascension. But now he's gone. Now he is gone to prepare that place. And look what Luke chapter 24, verse 52 says. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Right? Their hearts aren't troubled anymore. Their hearts aren't troubled. Whatever Jesus teaches them here over the next few hours really settles in, sinks in, couple that teaching with the resurrection, couple that teaching with what they hear from him after the resurrection. He ascends, he's gone, no more troubled hearts, right? They are rejoicing with great joy over the fact that Jesus just left, right? Like when they should have been sad maybe or crying, the Bible says they have great joy. Why? because their hearts aren't troubled anymore. They understand the fact that he has gone to be with the Father. They understand the truths of this passage, and they are looking forward to the implications. All right, let's look and see what this passage has for us today. 2,000 years later, people who have never been able to physically walk with Jesus, what does he say to us and our troubled hearts today? John chapter 14, verse 1, let not your hearts be troubled. Point number one is that we should expect anxious moments. We should expect anxious moments. We should expect that circumstances are going to be such where we are going to be tempted to be anxious. That we're going to be tempted to be anxious. Uh, Troubling times can be expected, and we see that's true for the disciples. But also in other passages of Scripture, Scripture anticipates troubling times and gives instructions about how to handle them, right? Think about two that immediately come to my mind. Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7. Right? These are passages that talk about what do we do with our burdens? What do we do with our cares, right? How do we handle those things in life? Because they're going to be there. We're going to have burdens. We're going to have cares. We're going to have temptations to worry, temptations to be anxious. What do we do with those things? 
Well, Scripture tells us, first of all, to cast our cares upon him, for he cares for us, right? We see that in 1 Peter. And then Galatians talks about bearing each other's burdens, that not only do we get to cast those upon the sovereign king of the universe, that we have other people that are meant to kind of walk and do life with us through the local church setting, right? And it's why, it's why the local church setting is so important, and it's really why aligning yourself with a particular local church is so important because it informs everybody as to who is supposed to help carry your burdens, right? It places some responsibility on other believers that says, hey, you are responsible for bearing that person's burden because they are a part of your local lived out body of Christ, right? So we cast our cares upon Jesus. We bear each other's burden. Scripture anticipates there will be troubling times and gives us instructions about how to handle them, not just here in John chapter 14, but in other places. Now, Jesus talks about leaving his disciples, but that's only from a physical standpoint, right? Because in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, where we are tempted to cast our cares and cast our burdens upon our paycheck. We're tempted to try to throw money at our problems. It says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. So even though Jesus is not physically with us, he makes this promise that he will never leave us. He will never forsake us, that we don't have to cast our cares upon the things of this world, right? We can still cast them upon Jesus who stays with us. The antidote for anxiousness in this passage is trusting Jesus. Now, there's probably a part of us that would like to hear or see something that we've never heard or seen before this morning that would be the fix or the cure for anxiousness that maybe we feel personally that that will solve our problems in ways that we've never seen before. But ultimately, he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. The antidote for for anxiousness is trusting Jesus, which means the cause of anxiousness is a lack of trust in him, right? Right? Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. He's, he's challenging them to put their faith and trust back into him. It's, it's kind of, it's maybe shifted a little bit. A lot of bad news rolling their way. He calls them back to reality and says, oh, your hearts don't have to be troubled here. You can believe the things that I've told you, which means that when we fall prey to anxiousness, when we fall prey to having a troubled heart, it's due to a lack of trust. It's due to a lack of trust, right? Troubling times can be expected, but number two, troubling times don't have to be troubling. Troubling times don't have to be troubling. Think about some of the reasons that the disciples are troubled here at the beginning of chapter 14. First off, they all had a wake-up call that they're a bunch of failures when it comes to seeing the needs of others around them, right? They all failed in washing each other's feet, and Jesus had to step down on the night before his crucifixion and do it for them. So they're probably wrestling with their own personal disappointment over the fact that, hey, we didn't wash the feet like we could have. But Jesus gives them a renewed chance, right? He, he talks about now, now that I've set the example for you, do this, right? Like follow this model of service where you put the needs of others above your own needs. So even though they're troubled by the fact that they, they didn't do what they should have done, They don't have to stay in this troubled state because Jesus calls them to do it now, moving forward, right? 
Judas is going to betray him. And by association, them as well. Certainly a reason to potentially be troubled. And yet, when we remind ourselves that Jesus already knew this, that Jesus allowed this, and Jesus plans to use this, it too is not a great reason to be troubled anymore, right? Peter's going to deny him. But again, Jesus knew this, and he knew it when he pronounced him clean, right? When, Jesus, when Peter says, oh, oh, oh wash, wash me all, like if that's what, what needs to be done, wash all of me, and Jesus says, you're already clean. You don't need a bath. You're, you're, you're already taken care of. So again, not a reason to be troubled in that even though Peter will fail, he's ultimately clean. Jesus is leaving them, right? Maybe a reason to be troubled, but Jesus has also assured them of a reunion with him. He says, you can't follow me right now, but you will follow me. You will go where I go, right? And so there's even that assurance that his departure is not a reason to be troubled. Now, in our discussion groups this morning, we talked a little bit about the fact that Anxiousness seems to be on the rise in our culture, in our community today. I told you that constantly in in parent and student conversations at school, there's this overwhelming feeling of anxiousness, right? And I I know you guys had a chance to talk about some of this this morning. I don't know some of the reasons that you came up with, but I don't think that our world is in any more turmoil than it was back during World War II, right? Right? I don't know that our world is in any more disarray. I don't know that our future uh, creates any more worries than it did in the past. But what I do believe is a key ingredient to the increased anxiousness that so many people are feeling in our culture is the increased awareness of everybody else's life and what everybody else is going through, right? When we think about the enhancements with technology— We cannot discount what some of technology has contributed to our own anxiousness. When we talk with kids at at school, uh, they are completely consumed with the lives of others and how their lives measure up. Why? Because they're seeing it constantly through social media, right? I believe social media is a tremendous tool by the enemy for the anxiousness that a lot of people feel. Now, is technology good? Absolutely. Is social media good? It certainly can be, right? Tyson could probably give you some, some great insight into that. He did a breakout session on, on, on ways to use social media for God's glory at Trinity. But like any good gift, it can be used for bad purposes, right? And for our kids, they are constantly seeing a facade of what everybody else's life looks like. And this doesn't just get relegated to kids only, right? It's true for us as adults, right? We see everybody else's holidays, we see everybody else's marriages, everybody else's vacations, and we compare it to our own, right? And it, and it creates this need inside of us to, okay, I've got I've to keep up, not just with my neighbors, which is what it used to be, right? Keeping up with, with what you saw your neighbors doing. Now it's keeping up with what the world is doing, right? And it creates all kinds of anxiousness in us as we try to uh, evaluate who we are in light of what we're seeing that's out there. It's unfortunate that there's nobody asking the question, should we do what we're doing with technology, right? I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Jurassic Park, but there's a, a scene where one of the scientists says, uh, you guys were too busy asking if we could make dinosaurs. You never stopped to ask, should we make dinosaurs, right? Because here we are on an island now, and dinosaurs are running around everywhere, and now it maybe makes you pause and say, should we have ever done this, right? 
technology is driven more by the ability, can we do it, versus the question of should we do it? And we're opening up all kinds of doors that we're not asking before we open, right? And I think that one thing that we have to do as, as Christian families, as Christian individuals, is to evaluate what particular role does technology play in our family and what potential harm can it create, particularly in regards to this anxious, troubled heart feeling. We have all kinds of reasons to feel troubled today. We're probably contributing to it by the things that we expose ourselves to. But troubling times, while they can be expected, they don't have to be troubling. We see how the disciples' troubles really had answers to them that no longer creates trouble for them. Expect anxious moments to come your way, but number two, refuse to settle for anxiousness. Refuse to settle for anxiousness. For our kids, Christians are not supposed to worry. Here's what's unfortunate, is that I think anxiousness is becoming such a common buzzword, such a common struggle that it's almost like people are just content to say, I I just struggle with anxiousness. I I, I just struggle with anxiety. As though it's just a necessary part of their life now. But we wouldn't do that with any other sin, right? We we would not be okay with somebody saying, I I just struggle with lust. It's just who I am. Or I just just have an anger problem and it's just always going to be there, right? Like we would see those things and say, no, you need to be attacking that, you need to be fighting that, you need accountability for it, you need to be confessing it, like you need to be growing in that area. The same is true for anxiousness, right? Like it's not something that we just get to settle in and say, oh, I just, I just have a lot of things in my life that, that make me anxious or create anxiety in me because this is a command from Jesus that says, let not your hearts be troubled, right? Don't allow yourself to settle into a state of just being anxious, just being troubled and thinking that that's okay, Right? We're not allowed to be anxious for anything, Paul tells us in Philippians. Right? Instead, we're to be prayerful about everything, anxious about nothing. It echoes what Jesus says here. Let not your hearts be troubled. Refuse to settle for anxiousness. Number one, a command is given to avoid this state of mind. It's not a suggestion, and it's not optional. Right? We are told to not be anxious, to not settle into a state where we allow our hearts to be troubled. It's a command that's given, a command to avoid this state of mind. And then number two, a solution is also given with it, thankfully, right? Like it's not just that, that Jesus steps in and says, don't be anxious, right? It's not that Jesus can say, hey, I don't know what, what that feels like or what that temptation's like, but let me just tell you, don't be that. He gives a solution, He gives an answer. He gives a way to battle the troubled heart. In an age of anxiety, Jesus offers us true medicine for our heart. The question we have to ask ourselves is, are we we willing to admit that help is possible through what we would maybe simplify as his word, right? Right? Are we, are we looking for something outside of his word? Do we feel like we're a special case where something is needed beyond his word? And that, that's not to say that there may not be special cases where something has to be coupled with God's word, right? I have no idea, you know, where you are at individually. You know, some of you may be on medication for anxiety. I know people that, that probably need that. 
But what we have to avoid is thinking that that alone would be the answer for our anxiousness separated from God's word. Because for a Christian, we are told to not let our hearts be troubled and we are told to believe certain things. We are to believe in God, to believe in Jesus, right? Now, there may be other things that have to come in and help support us in that. But the main antidote, the main ingredient for victory over anxiousness, the main ingredient for a troubled heart is to believe in Jesus. And we can believe what he tells us, right? Because he even anticipates the fact that maybe you're wondering if what I say is true, right? He says, if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? He's like, you think I'm a liar? Do you think I'm, I'm just throwing things out there arbitrarily for you to embrace that, that may or may not be true? No, he's saying, what I'm saying you can believe in. He's commanding them to, to refuse to settle for anxiousness, refuse to settle for a troubled heart. And he gives them a solution. He gives them true medicine. And that leads us to number three. Believe faith is the main antidote. Believe faith is the main antidote. For our kids, learning about Jesus and believing him helps us not to worry. Now, I chose these words intentionally because faith is, is really just the noun version of believing, right? So really what we're saying here is that believe that believing is the main antidote, right? Like believe that belief, believe that faith, believe that that is the main antidote for how we conquer anxiousness in our life. And it's not the one-time faith that brings us into salvation because we've talked all through the Gospel of John that as Christians, our faith is to be ongoing. Our faith is to be maturing, like we talked about in that summary sentence. You should believe Jesus more today than when you first got saved. It's why you should expect to question sometimes, do I need to get baptized again? Because I feel like I'm saved now and maybe I wasn't saved earlier in life. Why? Because if you got saved early in life and, and now you look back on it 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, you're thinking like, man, I know so much more about being a Christian. I love Jesus so much more now than I possibly could have when I was five or six. That doesn't mean go into panic mode and get baptized again. It just means, hey, you're a growing, maturing Christian just like you're supposed to be, right? You should love Jesus more today than when you first got saved. You should believe him more today than when you first got saved. Our, our antidote for anxiousness is to believe that belief, that faith, that believing is the main antidote. <clears throat> and there's things that we're told to specifically believe. Number one, we must keep believing in the deity of Jesus. We must keep believing in the deity of Jesus. Correct theology will help soothe our hearts. Let me say that again. Correct theology will help soothe our hearts. Right? We don't, we don't talk theology. We don't read theology. We don't study theology just to puff up our minds with knowledge. Man, knowing the attributes of God, understanding theology is meant to soothe our hearts. Right? It's meant to conquer anxiousness. It's meant to untrouble the troubling heart, to know him, to believe him, to trust him. We believe in the deity of Jesus. It gives him the right to untrouble us. It gives him the right to be the one to say, don't be troubled. 
He is the antidote for our anxiety. And he goes into this, this uh, clarification once again about his deity, right? He says, um, we'll skip and we'll come back to uh, the preparation for the Father's house. It says, uh, verse 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, do know, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. What's Jesus doing here? I mean, he is, he is meshing himself with the Father so much that it's hard to see a separation. Now, there is, there is some level of separation, right? Because we're not, we're not of the Jesus-only camp where we would say that there is no Father, that there's Jesus only, right? We believe in the Trinity. We believe in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit because we see all three of them mentioned in this passage, right? Next week, we'll see Jesus talking about the coming Spirit that would come upon his disciples in a new and fresh way. But he aligns himself so closely with the Father that you can't help but see his deity here. Right, that he's not a created being, he's not a lesser being, he's not an angel, he's not a good prophet, he's not a good teacher, he's not a he's not a man only. Right? He is one with the Father. And so we see his deity, which gives us great confidence when he tells us, Don't be troubled. Why? Because he's God. And and God is instructing his followers that you don't have to be troubled. Number two, we must keep believing that he is the only way. He identifies himself in this trifecta of the way, the truth, and the life. He's the only way. His ways are the right ways, the best ways. Right? We follow the shepherd. We follow his way of doing things. Christianity is exclusive, not in who it lets in, but how it lets them in. Right? We're an, we're an exclusive We're an exclusive uh, group of people, not because of who we let in, but but how you get in, right? You only get in by Jesus. You only get in one way. It's not about following another religion as as true and as pure as you can and God counting that and, and, and favoring that and allowing that, right? It's only by Jesus that you get to the Father. We have to keep believing that he is the only way. We believe uniqueness about Jesus. We follow him to the Father. He takes us where we can't normally go, right? He says, you want to get to the Father? Well, well, you have to come through me. Like, I'll take you to him. I think we've talked about this before. You ever been with somebody who takes you somewhere where you're not normally allowed to go? And you're kind of like looking around like, am I going to get in trouble? No, I'm with with so-and-so, right? Like Lauren and I got to go to the Stars Mill game with uh, Jason on Friday night. And so, I mean, it was just an incredible high school football game, right? And it goes into, goes into overtime, right? And Jason kind of turns and he's like, you want to get on the field and watch it? And I'm like, can we? Can we go down to the field and watch the overtime? And he's like, yeah. He's like, just stick with me, right? Now, if we're at Trinity, right? If we're at Trinity, I'm the one saying, hey, you want to get on the field, right? Like, I can go anywhere I want to at Trinity. I have clearance to go wherever I need to at Trinity, 
Stars Mill, I'd never been on the campus before, right? But Jason's like, hey, if you want to go down there, just come with me. And so we come, you know, down to the field, and we walk right by the security because they know who Jason is, and we're right there on the field, right? And I'm kind of looking around. I'm like, I'm not supposed to be here, right? Like, I shouldn't be here right now, but I'm with Jason, right? That's how it is following Jesus to the Father, right? We're not supposed to be there, right? Like, the veil should keep us from being in his holy presence, but Jesus fixes the problem, right? Like Jesus cleanses us. It's his perfection. It's his blood that satisfies the wrath of God to where we do get to go and be with him. We do get to go be with the Father. Like Jesus is our security. He's the one who gives us the clearance to be there. We have to keep believing that he's the only way. Number three, we must keep believing that he is the only truth. Nothing is true outside of what he says. Man, that's a, that's a good cure for an anxious heart right there, right? Because oftentimes our anxiousness comes from believing things that aren't true, right? The message from the enemy, the message from the world, whatever it might be, something is attacking our heart and it's causing us trouble and it's probably something that's not true. Anything outside of what Jesus says is not true because he is truth. Right? So the things that he says about you, when, when you're tempted to maybe be anxious about your failures and what does that do with your standing before God? Right? Like that, that's, that's lies from Satan. That's lies from Satan that, that our hearts start to listen to and grow anxious about. When we start to worry about the amount of money that we have and whether we can take care of our family and take care of our needs, that's not, that's not true things because we're told not to love money. We're told to cast our cares upon Jesus who cares for us, right? That if it'll never leave us or forsake us. Right, So anything outside of what Jesus says is not true because he is the truth. We have to keep believing that he's not only the only way, he's the only truth. And then lastly, number four, he's the only source of life. That's for here and forever. Right? The only way that we, we really know life and enjoy life here on this earth is through Jesus. He gives us the proper perspective about what this life's supposed to look like, right? It's supposed to look like where we serve other people, where we love other people. We put the needs of others above our own needs. We don't live selfishly for ourselves. If we want to enjoy life here properly, we do it through the lens of taking care of others. And it leads to forever life with him. Believe faith is the main antidote. Correct theology soothes our hearts. He is God. He's the only way. He's the only truth. He is the only source of life. And our heart needs to be reminded of that regularly. Number four, we need to know our future well. We need to know our future well. For our kids, we don't have to worry about the future because Jesus has already told us what happens. We don't have to worry about the future because Jesus has already told us what happens. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. We need to know our future well. This is another piece of God's word that sometimes becomes so lofty for us, we miss its purpose. Right? If you read 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, real familiar passage about the return of Jesus, um, and Titus 2, 13. 
Both of these talk about the blessedness and the encouragement that comes from knowing what the end looks like. And I fully believe that that Jesus has given us as much as we need to know about the future to be encouraged about what's going to happen. Does he answer all of our questions? No. But eschatology, which is the study of the end times, eschatology is meant to be comforting, not confusing. It's meant to be comforting, not confusing. Jesus comforts us with the promise of life forever with him in heaven. It protects us from loneliness and despair here, and it makes the journey bearable. It makes the journey bearable, right? He's telling them, don't let your hearts be troubled. Is Judas about to betray us? Yeah. Is Peter going to deny us? Yeah. Am I about to leave? Yeah. Right? But you don't have to have a troubled heart because here's what's coming. Here's what's coming. I'm going to prepare a place for you, and then I'm coming back for you. Right? He wants them to see that the journey is bearable because of what the end result is. Right? I don't like to travel because I don't like to drive. Now, I'm fine with flying. I don't care. You know, some, there's some people that are like, well, by the time you go to the airport and you, and you wait for your flight and then you get on the flight and then you get up, like it's the same amount of time as driving. I don't care how long it takes. I hate being in a car for like longer than 30 minutes. Like I just, I just don't like it. So I don't care if I sit at the airport for four hours waiting on my plane right? I'm going to have my computer out. I'm going to be stopping at one of the restaurants to eat at. Like, I'm going to be hanging out at the airport. Like, I'm not sitting in a car. I hate being in a car, right? So when Lauren and I first are, are dating, right, like, her, her, her college is on the other end of the state, right? Like, it's at the end of Valdosta, and there's, like, nothing good between here and Valdosta. There's just not, right? Like, you have to go through Macon, and I hate Macon because it takes longer than 30 minutes to get there. And when you get there, it's not worth the drive, right? I hate Macon. You have to go through Macon to get to Valdosta, right? But my future bride was in Valdosta, right? And so I made the trek to Valdosta more than I ever have in my life and more than I ever will again in my life because Lauren was in Valdosta, right? Being with her during that season of dating and engagement made the journey bearable, right? And it was a miserable journey to get down there to her because I hate the drive and I hate the scenery on the way to Valdosta. But the end result made that journey bearable. Now, you couldn't convince me to go to Valdosta for much of anything right now because there ain't nothing at the end of the journey right now that would make a trip to Valdosta worth it because Lauren's here with me, right? But Jesus gives them kind of the end perspective that makes the journey bearable, right? He's like, look, don't let your heart be troubled because here's what's coming in the future. Here's what's coming in the future. Number one, and and he doesn't give us a lot of detail here about, about eschatology. He doesn't give us a lot of detail here about what our future looks like, right? But there are two things that he points out that are very believable, even if you don't really know all the details about when this stuff happens, right? Believe that he's preparing a place for you. Believe that he's preparing a place for you. That should be comforting to us because it means that he isn't doing nothing right now, right? We don't have Jesus just disappearing and and doing nothing while we're sitting here going through troubled times, right? He says, look, there's intentionality with our separation, There are things that are being done and accomplished with us being separated. Believe he's preparing a place for you. 
during that, that season of life where Lauren and I were separated. There were things that were happening where I was preparing a place for us. At the time, I didn't have a job when we first met. I had a summer job, but at the end of the summer, that job was over. Right? And I didn't have a lot of money to my name. I didn't have a place to live. I mean, I literally had been living with my parents before going to camp that summer where I met her. So during that season where she's finishing school and we're dating, I'm living in Griffin, establishing something to bring her to, right? Setting up a home for us, setting up a job, setting up a bank account, like setting up a life for her to be with me for. Jesus says, look, I'm separating from you for a time. I'm preparing something for us for eternity. The first step in that preparation was going to the cross, and he's about to separate from his disciples to go to the cross to pave the way for us to be with him. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 talks about our citizenship being in heaven. And then Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6 really talks about how we should even view ourselves as being there right now. That it's so certain, that it's so sure that this is what our destiny looks like, what our future looks like. We should see ourselves already seated in the heavenly places with him. Believe that he's preparing a place for you. And number two, believe he's coming for you. Believe he's coming for you. Right? Don't think in terms of what's he doing for Israel, what's he doing for the church. There's an individual eschatology that applies for you. Right? Jesus doesn't say that he's coming for the church here. Is he? Absolutely. But he says he's coming for them individually as well. Right? Jesus is coming for you. You have an individual eschatology to look forward to. Right? You're getting a new body. You're getting eternity with not just a place, but a person. Heaven's great because Jesus is there. That's why there's no sickness. That's why there's no death. That's why there's no pain. That's why there's no tears. We're not just, we're not just longing for a place, but a person. And the final outcome has already been determined. Take great comfort in that. Now, some of you haven't, haven't been in depth exposed to future things, right? The book of Revelation, a lot of times off limits. It's a Wednesday night study. Um, we, we have the chance to do that as a church, and some of you have come after the fact. Some of you weren't here when we did that two-year-long study in the book of Revelation, right? Thankfully, technology being used for good, right? We have all those things recorded for you. I would, I would challenge you, if you weren't here for Revelation, to go back and, and, and listen through and study through that. Why? Because it's how you, you attack an anxious heart, is you know your future well. Now, what do we need to know? That he's preparing a place for us, that he's coming back for us. But just like there's things that you believe when you're five and you believe them more deeply when you're older and you've studied longer, right? There's a lot more about our future that is certain beyond him preparing a place for us and him coming back for us. Scripture says a whole lot more that offers encouragement to us. I would encourage you to find that in Scripture, to look at the resources that are available, to spend some intentional time yourself knowing your future well. And then number five, embrace your present purpose. Embrace your present purpose, right? Expect anxious moments to come. There's going to be things that, that will tempt us to be troubled, but refuse to settle for that. Refuse to settle and be an anxious person. Instead, believe that believing, believe that faith is the main antidote, that we, that we allow theology to soothe our hearts, that Jesus, who is God, remains in control of our life, and he certainly remains in control of our future, where oftentimes our anxiety is, 
is birthed from, right? Uncertainty about our future, the Bible shores that up for us. But we don't just look completely to the future alone. There's a present purpose that we're called to embrace. And we see that starting in verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Number one, we have great works we are supposed to accomplish. We have great works that we are supposed to accomplish. Now, I don't know if any of the groups got to our discussion question this morning about what does it mean for Christians to do greater works than Jesus? Um, Because we've already seen, and, and John's a gospel that doesn't mention a ton of his miracles, but we've seen some pretty unique special miracles, right? I mean, how do you do greater than turning water into wine? How do you do greater than feeding 5,000 people with one lunch? How do you do better than than raising Lazarus from the dead? How do you do greater than raising yourself from the dead, right? Like, it can't be in the quality of work because Jesus exceeds anything that we can do quality-wise. But he's the one that says, you're gonna do greater works than these when I go to the Father. What's he talking about? I think specifically he's talking about quantity and scope the amount of works that will be done through his followers, not just individuals, but the church collectively. We could certainly say that the church collectively has done more quantity-wise than Jesus was able to do in his short time of ministry, right? And we can also say that it extended further than Jesus's ministry, right? Jesus never went much beyond that Jerusalem-Palestine area, right? But we know now that followers of Jesus have gone to the ends of the earth to do these great works, right? So how do you, how do you handle this passage? How are our works greater? Well, they're greater geographically, right? Jesus confined to Palestine. Jesus' followers now all around the globe. They're greater ethnically. Jesus primarily focused on the Jewish nation, the Jewish population, whereas the disciples will now focus on the Gentiles, Numerically, when you see post-resurrection, how many people are following Jesus? Well, at one point, Peter's talking to about 100 of them in the book of Acts, right? And then Paul talks about, hey, he appeared to about 500 people, right? So we're talking about the hundreds, and that may be a little on the excessive side, of people who actually believed in Jesus as a result of his ministry. Now, did he have large crowds? Absolutely. But we've already seen in John these large crowds, dissipate and leave when the teachings get hard, right? People that never followed him again. Well, think about what happens on Pentecost, right? Peter preaches and how many people get saved? 3,000. A lot of commentators say more people got saved in that one day alone than during all of Jesus's ministry. that's, that's, That's a greater work when we're talking about the quantity, right? So geographically, ethnically, numerically, and then even spiritually, Jesus did a lot of the physical healings. We see some some of these incidents where he's reaching into the heart and changing hearts, but his ministry time is short. While we'll never raise an individual from the dead, unless something crazy happens that I'm not aware of, we do have the opportunity to see people raised spiritually from the dead, right? We get to see that regularly if we're sharing the gospel. That's far greater than a physical resurrection in the grand scope of things. 
But here's what I would want you to, to see from this passage. The true distinction is not, or the true comparison is not what Jesus did versus what his disciples do. The true comparison is what Jesus did on earth and what he does from heaven through his people left on earth, right? Because it's not us doing the works, right? Jesus is still doing the works. He's doing them through us, right? So it's not so much Jesus did this and we do this. It's Jesus did this when he was on earth and Jesus does this now in heaven through people on earth. We have great works that are supposed to be accomplished, right? Great works that involve us loving others inside this church, outside this church. And then number two, we have prayers to pray that will be answered. So what are we supposed to do while we wait on this great future? Well, there's great works that need to be done, and there's prayers that need to be prayed. He says, whatever you ask in my name, verse 13, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. We're called to pray prayers that are consistent with Jesus' will for the glory of the Father. Prayers that are consistent with Jesus' will for the glory of the Father. When you pray those type of prayers, they get answered. Jesus promises they'll get answered. And I can tell you one personally from this passage that I believe can be prayed in confidence with an expectation of answer is for your heart not to be troubled, right? That you pray for your heart not to be troubled. If you're one that struggles with anxiety, and I'm sure we've got individuals in here that would describe themselves that way, that at times you're gripped by, by anxiousness, at times your heart does become troubled, that there's things that you have a responsibility to do, right? That's to believe, to know even what to believe. But I think you can also pray confidently, asking in Jesus's name that you would be able to take the truths that you know, believe them in your heart, and have your heart become untroubled. I think we can believe that confidently. Why? Because that aligns with God's will, because God's will is that we would not be troubled, that we would not be troubled. All right, three points of application in closing today. Three things that you can specifically do this week. Number one, identify any particular personal anxieties and determine a plan for learning how Scripture speaks to those areas. Right? This involves you stepping back and saying, okay, what are some things that I feel anxious about? And then how am I going to commit myself to knowing what Scripture says about those specific anxieties? That can be you through your own personal study. That can be you getting with somebody in our church and saying, hey, I'd love to have coffee with you. I'd love to do breakfast with you. I'd love to talk with you about this. Talk to me about what Scripture has to say about this because it causes me anxiousness. It causes my heart to be troubled at times, right? You identify those anxieties and you determine a plan for how Scripture is going to speak to those areas in your life. And if you don't know how it speaks to those areas, that's where you ask for help. That's where you ask for somebody else to bear your burden with you, all right? Identify any particular personal anxieties and determine a plan for learning how Scripture speaks to those areas because that necessitates you believing that belief is the main antidote, right? Not to say that there won't be other things needed. Not to say there won't be other supplemental things that have to come in and play a role in helping you with your anxiousness, but it starts 
with the main antidote of believing God. Number two, find time this week to refresh yourself on the future hope you have as a believer. So whether you were here for Revelation or not, right? we all would do well to refresh ourselves on an aspect of the hope that we have. Man, this could be uh, reading a simple article that's out there, uh, picking up a book, having a conversation with another believer. Spend some time this week refreshing yourself on our future hope. Even if you were here for all of First and Second Thessalonians and all of Revelation, where all we did was talk about our future hope. It's been years since we were there. And our hearts could use a refresher because it helps us not to be anxious. And then number three, plan to serve someone this week. Get creative, schedule it, do it. Greater works we're supposed to be doing. Plan to serve someone this week as an extension of Jesus. You get to be an extension of Jesus this week by doing a work in his name. Plan to serve someone this week. Be that extension of Jesus. So identify particular personal anxieties, determine a plan for learning how Scripture speaks to those. Find time this week to refresh yourself on the future hope you have as a believer. Plan to serve someone this week. Maturing faith in Jesus is the basis preventing one's heart from being troubled. Our anxieties particularly dissipate as we recognize more clearly our secure future and our present purpose. Family worship questions this week. What types of things are we tempted to worry about? Since Jesus is the truth, what are some truthful things he tells us that can help us with our worries? Let's pray together. Jesus, we do thank you that we can come to you today with the things that trouble us most. God, so oftentimes when we share requests, it's a reflection of things that are weighing heavy on our hearts. And so, God, we have sick family, sick relatives, sick friends. We've got upcoming tests. We've got job uncertainties, living situations. And we've got a lot of things that weigh heavy as burdens and cares upon us today. God, remind us that we can cast those upon you. Remind us that we can ask others to help us bear those burdens. But ultimately, God, I pray that you would remind us that by believing in you, we can avoid the troubled heart that's oftentimes caused by those things. God, help us to, to remember that our future is certain, that you are actively working right now, preparing our future for us, and that you are coming back. You're coming back for the church, but you're coming back for us individually. God, help us to to see truthful things this week, to appropriate those truthful things to our hearts this week. Help us to be dismissive of things that aren't from you, that, that, that aren't things that you say about us, that aren't things that you say about our circumstances. Help us to see that you are the way, that you are the source of life. Keep us believing and following you all the way to the Father. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.